As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer. Jesus, you are strong and kind. We are sinners through and through, but your mercy is far greater. You have chosen to pick ordinary, dirty, broken, sinful people like us up out of the dirt. Shape and fashion us for your purposes. Assemble us into a temple, a body that is wholly pleasing for you to dwell in. All because Jesus went before us. You said we could come to you, but in our sin we couldn't come. And so in your mercy, you sent Jesus to come and get us. We thank you for that. And now we lay our lives down. We offer our lives as living stones for you to build up into something beautiful. Do that by your word through us today. Amen. The Great Pyramid at Giza in Egypt is an engineering marvel. It doesn't look like much. It looks like something my kids might build out of Legos at home. But the more you study it, the more amazing you realize it is. It was built almost 4,500 years ago, before Abraham in our Bibles. Before Abraham lived, that pyramid was built. It has stood through thousands of years of history, countless storms changing nations. For 3,800 years, it stood as the tallest building in the world. Incredible feat of strength. It is made out of five and a half million tons of granite and limestone that were imported from hundreds of miles away. Each of those blocks weighing one and a half to 50 tons. How did they do that? The construction is just an incredible display of power and strength of the Egyptians. But it's also a feat of intricate detail and meticulous care. The base of that pyramid is the size of ten football fields. And yet it's almost perfectly square within just a couple of centimeters. Centimeters. 
the, the square itself is aligned almost perfectly north and south, east and west. A feat that's only possible by modern surveying and construction equipment. But they did it 4,500 years ago. The angles of every side are exactly the same, about 51 degrees, that each side comes up and meets at a point right down the middle, balancing the weight of the entire structure right down its center of gravity. At over 750 feet in length, it's almost perfectly level, only dropping in elevation by a couple of centimeters. This thing is a marvel. It's prevailed through the course of history in its strength and simple beauty, and all of it was dependent upon how precisely that first stone was laid down, that cornerstone. If that first stone was twisted a little bit or tilted, even just a half a degree, at that size, it could be off by many feet, compromising the structural integrity. That cornerstone had to be perfect. And Peter tells us in his letter today of an even more impressive structure being built. It's called the church. It's the temple of God. It might not look like much. We're all just look like a bunch of stones piled together. Nothing impressive about us. But the more you analyze it, the more impressive you realize this temple of God called the church is. Jesus said He would build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will last for eternity far longer than that pyramid. Cannot be moved or shaken. The book of Revelation tells us when the temple is complete, it's a perfect square, perfect, perfectly balanced so it cannot collapse on itself. And one day, it will fill the entire earth with all the beauty and splendor of creation displaying God's glory in this structure. Yet this temple needed a cornerstone even more perfect than that pyramid. It's built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ Himself, who's the perfect man who laid down His life at just the right time in just the right place with perfect orientation to the Father. That the entire church of God would be built upon Him a holy, pleasing place for His Spirit to dwell. On your own, your life is of no great significance. You're just a stone laying in a quarry somewhere with the wrong shape, rough edges that don't fit well together with anybody else for anything useful. But in Christ, we're called to offer our lives as living stones to display the excellencies of God in His spiritual When you give your life to Christ, you're saying, shape me, fashion me to be fit for this temple. Align me with the cornerstone that I would be aligned with the Father. Stack me together with other stones that will last, span the test of time. Offer your life as a living stone to display the excellencies of God in His house. Peter makes this call to us first in verses 4-8. to He's going to describe what this spiritual house looks like, how it's built. And then going further in verses 9-10, to he says that we're not just stones, but we are God's honored guests. His honored guests in His own home, seated at the most honored places of the Most High God. Today's text is kind of a summary of everything that we've taught so far 
in chapter 1. Before Peter gets intensely practical in the next couple of weeks with how we should relate to others in society, he wants to just summarize it all and encourage us to endure in salvation. He knows that his readers are suffering greatly, and he's called them from chapter 1. Endure in this incredible salvation in Christ that you've been given. It's a salvation with an eternal, imperishable inheritance. Guaranteed for you. It's a salvation that the prophets longed for and angels looked down and marvel at. It's a salvation that makes you pure and holy. Holy, devoted to God in all of your life. And it connects you with other people who are in Christ by His love. And then, when we receive this salvation, we are like newborn babies. We need to be held and constantly nourished by the milk of God's Word to grow us, to mature us into something spectacular. So the question is, what are we growing into? What does maturity as a believer look like? Peter's switch to temple imagery now is to tell us that spiritual maturity is growing into a chosen royal priesthood that serves in the temple of the living God. As spiritual children, you are like Eli. You remember this, or Samuel. You remember the story of Samuel. Hannah couldn't have a baby for many years and she gives birth to Samuel. She prayed, God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to your service in the temple. And as soon as he was born, she weaned him and handed him off to Eli the priest. Said, raise him, train him, instruct him in the ways of service in God's house. And that's who we are in Christ as well. Newborn babies fed the milk of the Word and handed off to the priests in the temple to say, mature them into godly servants in His spiritual house. This cosmic temple imagery is a strong theme throughout the Bible as I preached a few months ago from the book of Haggai. won't recall that entire sermon, but just to summarize, remember that the Garden of Eden and Noah's Ark and that tent that traveled through the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem, all of these were kinds of temples where God could dwell with His people and they would serve be servants and guardians in, guardians in God's place. But these places weren't exactly what God had ultimately in mind to relate with His people in His house. So when Israel rebelled in all of those cases, just like Adam and Eve, when they turned against God, He destroyed every one of those temples because He wanted to build something longer lasting. Jesus came and He brought more clarity He said, He's the Son of David, that promised King who would come and build the temple that would last forever. But we would realize that it's not just a building, as He told David in 2 Samuel 7, but a household, a family that would endure throughout the ages. So Jesus makes these strange statements about His own body. This body is a temple. And if you destroy this body... I'm going to rise again and begin a new temple that can never be destroyed. So with all that background in Peter's mind, he's eager to encourage the saints to endure suffering knowing that if they are rejected just like Christ, then just like Christ, they will be exalted to dwell in God's spiritual house. This eternal, indestructible home. 
Let's see how Peter describes it in verses 4 to 8. Peter writes, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. So here in this section, Peter's collecting a bunch of quotes about stones that others may have just read over quickly in their Old Testament. But these are from Isaiah and the Psalms to make the argument that Jesus and His church together are being built into a spiritual house. And unknowingly, the builders or the tools of that building are the very people who reject them. Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but accepted, chosen by God as the cornerstone. And if you are in Him, you too are a living stone to be rejected by the world, but in so doing, being fashioned as chosen, precious for God's house. Those who deny Him are actually instruments of that construction. And in the final day, they'll find themselves left outside in the dark. Peter is leaving us here, urging us to make a decision. Do you want to be accepted by the world and rejected by God in the end or rejected by the world? Did I get that backwards? Accepted by God. Which do you want? Remember that Peter's speaking to Christians scattered throughout Galatia and Asia. They've been kicked out of their families for following Jesus. They've been moved to other homes in different cities. They've been expelled from their synagogues, beaten, mocked, even killed for their faith. Why should they endure this? All they have left is fear and anxiety and shame. It's pushed to the bottom rungs of society. Peter encourages them that this is not a sign that God has abandoned them, but proof actually that they are being aligned with their Savior, the cornerstone. Verse 4 says that Jesus was the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. The world hated Him. But God was using that rejection to actually accomplish His purposes. They thought they had defeated Jesus by killing Him. But actually, that was God's plan to save His people through that very rejection. Verse 7 says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The death of Christ seemed like just this terrible moment in history that left people wondering, where is God? But it was that very thing that accomplished salvation for God's people by placing all of their sins on His shoulders on the cross, taking the punishment for all who trust in Him. And by rising from the dead, He says, there is no more death for those who are in Me. I am laying the foundation for a structure that will last forever Nobody can destroy it. Peter wants you to know, if you repent of your sins, your old life dying with Him on the cross, 
that you are offering yourself as a living stone to be built up into God's house. But before that can happen, you need to be shaped. You can't just start piling stones up. You need to cut them, hew them down, smooth them out so they're the right shape and can fit tightly together with others. And so, just like Jesus, you're going to face difficulty in this world. But also, just like Jesus, it's going to be for something far greater than the world realizes. Verse 5 tells us, You yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Your suffering has a purpose. It's not meaningless. It's to build you up into something beautiful. Even if you can't see it at this moment. Jesus told us that a servant is not above his master. If the master suffered, then so will we. We should expect it. We should anticipate difficulty in life. Not simply because the world hates our message. That is true. But it's not their purpose, but God's purpose. Suffering is brought into your life so that He can shape you into His holy purpose for His temple. He designed suffering for our lives to align us more perfectly with the cornerstone that we would be level and smooth, straight and true, aligned with the Father. God is in complete control of all of it, even the painful tools that He uses. That's the point of the last phrase in verse 8. They disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Believe it or not, that statement is supposed to be an encouragement to you who are suffering. That God destined they disobey the Word and bring bring suffering into your life. It's not a debate over whether or not God decides who goes to heaven and hell. We believe that God is ultimately in control of all that, but that's not what this text is about. He's telling us that those who rebel are destined to bring refinement to us. Rebellious people are God's chisels. They're His grinders to be placed in our lives so that we would fit for His purposes. This is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says that we're more than conquerors in Christ. Those who reject you are your tools to turn around on yourself and refine you, make you more fit for heaven. So thank God for them. Rejoice! Receive those sufferings with joy because they make you more able to know and delight in Christ. Understanding this is vital before we can go on to the next text. Before we can go on to what Peter is going to tell us is something very difficult. He's going to tell us, subject yourself to all kinds of people in your life. Submit. It's kind of a dirty word in our culture. We debate what that word means. Submit. Are you telling me I just need to lay my life down as a doormat for someone else to trample on? For others just to keep shame upon me? In a sense, Peter's telling us yes. But what the world sees as a shameful doormat, our Father sees as an honorable stone for His temple. At the end of verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah saying, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Instead, verse 7 tells us, those who will believe will be given a place of honor in His house. 
Even the word, the word precious in verses four and six means honor. He's honored by the Father, by God. It's an honorable thing to be humbled, to be just like Jesus, so that we will be exalted like Him. This word precious, honored, is used only a few times in the Bible, and one that's really relevant to us is in Luke 14. If you can turn there quickly, you'll read along with me, starting in verse 8. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable about arriving at a wedding feast. Luke 14, verse 8, He says, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not go sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you is invited by Him. And He who invited you both will come and say to you, why don't you give your place to this person? And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. In front of everybody, you're asked to move down. But when you're invited, no, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes to you, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In a shame and honor culture, your place in relation to others is determined by how important you are, how good of a person you are. Maybe even just what family you're born into. So when you arrive in a place where other people are, if you are important, they're supposed to lift you up and put you forward in front of everyone else to see, oh, look how great they are. But if you were lower class or you did something shameful, you're not as important. And so the culture's responsibility is to put you down below everybody else. But Christ Himself, Philippians 2 tells us, He had all honor in heaven. And He emptied Himself of it, making Himself a slave, a servant to everybody else. So that all who are in Him will be exalted, lifted up, to share His place of honor. That's the incredible good news of the Gospel. Your suffering is making you more like Jesus, bringing you down so you have a greater ride to the top when He arrives and brings you home. But those who give in to temptation, those who say that that future honor isn't worth the present suffering, the present shame, they're those Builders who reject the cornerstone. They stumble over the stone in verse 8. They find it offensive that a loving God would bring suffering into this world. Why wouldn't He just accept me as I am? They don't want to change. They like their sin. But the cornerstone calls us to something else. Something radical. Die to yourself. Give up every dream you had for your life and every preference and let the Master Builder hew you down, cut you down into living stones fit to enjoy a place of honor that Jesus is preparing for us. This is what the Gospel calls us to. Offer your life as a living stone in God's house. This future honor, though, is so high that it's not meant for stones. Remember when Jesus said, if, if these people keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Well, His preference is that people cry out. So we see in verses 9 and 10 that we are actually God's honored guests. The word translated house in verse 5 has kind of a double meaning as it did for David. 
God's going to build him a house. Not just a building, but a family, a dynasty. Peter wants us to see that we are both bricks of the house and the tenants. The family that lives inside of it. In the same way that Jesus is the cornerstone and the head of the household, we are living stones and His brothers and sisters inside. But we have a special responsibility as members of this family. Verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now in Christ you have received mercy. These are all phrases that are making a Jewish person's mind just go crazy. These are all promises to Israel given in the exodus from Egypt, given in return from exile out of Babylon, assuring them that they are going to one day enter into something that can never be destroyed. But Peter picks up on it and says, no, this is all fulfilled in the church. Your suffering won't last forever. Your honor is just ahead. Israel was a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. In Hosea, they were promised that even though in their sin they were called not my people, one day they would be redeemed to be called my people. Because they had not received mercy, but one day in Christ they will receive mercy. But in both of those experiences coming out of those foreign lands, they, they didn't really get to dwell with God. They went to their land. They built a new temple. They praised God that it was there. They offered sacrifices, but they weren't honored guests. They weren't allowed to go in. There was a big curtain that said, you shall not pass. I didn't mean to sound so much like Gandalf there. But now in Christ, <laughs> we have access to the most holy place. The curtain is torn. And He says, if you are in Christ, come on in. Be seated at the most honorable places. Come right to the front with My Son. Be a royal priest in My home. What does it mean to be a priest? We say often that we the pastors aren't the priests. That you are all the priests. If you are a member of the church of God, the temple of God, you are a priest in that temple. What does it mean to be a priest? In Genesis 2, Adam was given a command that was only later given to priests who work in the temple. He was told to work and keep the garden. That is, Cultivate it and guard it. Provide for it and protect it from evil. In Exodus 19, after God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt through these many signs and wonders, He told them, I'm making you a kingdom of priests before the nations. Their job as a nation was to be priests who would mediate between God and the nations. They would provide for the whole world righteousness and life and they would Protect it from evil. They were to represent the nations before God and God before the nations. But they failed at that too. Instead, they became like the nations. Instead of helping the nations become like God. 
But Jesus is the perfect priest. As we said, He came down, humbled Himself beneath all of the nation, saying, come, be forgiven in Me. And He exalts everybody in Him so that we can be priests with Him. That's our identity in Christ. Our job is to protect the house of God. Make sure that no evil comes in. Provide for it. Feed by the Word of God as we saw in the last few verses last week. Feed the family with the Word of God. And we invite the nations to become honorable with us in Christ. This honor is guaranteed. This is what He's telling the people who are suffering. You feel like you've been shamed. You feel like you're put down. You can be confident that there is a place of honor waiting for you. Don't deny Christ. Stay with Him. He guarantees it. Not because of our own skills, our own insights and wisdom and our ability, but because His perfect life His sacrificial death, His resurrection from the dead, and now His Spirit alive in all of us. We were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You are honored by God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you are useful, valuable stones, honored guests because you have received mercy. What a gift! And the entire purpose of all this salvation, the whole reason you're invited into the home, built into this house, given this priestly responsibility, is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. Your entire life now, as you mature in Christ, is to make Christ known and bring others to Him. You offer your life as living stones, ordinary people, stacked together to show God's wisdom at work, not your own. Displaying God's excellencies doesn't happen through Gathering together a church with a vision to become this great, cool thing that has these programs and that thing so that people are impressed by what we do. It's not our devotion to biblical principles in our life to see how to have a successful career and and a good, peaceful family. All of this building work will be done in a way that shows the great structure wasn't our vision, our skills, but God's work. You have much to do with God's building project as those stones in the pyramid had in building that. When you hear about how amazing the pyramid is, you don't start thinking about, wow, how incredible that those stones just cut themselves out of the quarry and hauled themselves over to the building site and stacked themselves up onto one another. Only evolutionary theory could come up with an explanation like that. No, when we marvel at the precise construction of this massive structure, we rightly praise the makers, those who designed it and measured it and carried those huge stones and carved them and stacked them. How did they do that? What an amazing feat of engineering and construction. What ingenuity and strength. Who were these people? And the church of God is a far greater structure. We're nothing ourselves. The world might look at us and think, that's not very spectacular. But put together, we are a thing of enduring simple elegance that displays the excellencies of our Builder. The only people working on this structure are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. 
It's his structure, his design, his work that he is going to complete through living stones. We're just living stones and the honored guests invited to make much of our maker. What an amazing picture this is for us to hold before our eyes as we go through life. It's a beautiful picture, but even still, I wonder, why does it matter? Why is it encouraging to a suffering saint to tell them, did you know you're part of an incredible structure of God? Cool. That's neat. Someone struggling with anxiety. Oh, did you know you're in the temple of God? Someone's tempted to fall back into an addiction, and your answer is that they're part of a spiritual house? Or you're faced with worldly injustice or some great failure in your life. You're being built into a massive structure. That's neat. Thanks, Pastor. How is that helpful? It's helpful because every one of those temptations and failures results from taking our eyes off of what we were made for. What we are being shaped for. This guaranteed, enduring work of God. We take our eyes off of Christ. When difficulty comes and stress overwhelms you, people hurt you, the natural response is to freeze in fear, panic and anxiety, fight back in frustration, or just escape to some fantasy. We think that we're not on solid ground, so we need to jump to some other ground just to stay safe, but it's exhausting. The world gives us many ways to cope, but everything we do apart from Christ is just Shifting your temptations, your anxieties, your fears, your addictions somewhere else. You exchange one idol for another. You move from one addiction to a more culturally acceptable addiction. But God's call is much more dramatic. Die to yourself. Offer your life as an ordinary living stone for Him to stack up to be part of something that will never be destroyed. Become a living stone in his household, become a royal priest in his home. Proclaim his value far above anything in this world by standing through every storm in your life saying, he's worth it. That coming honor with Christ is so worth it. I'll give up everything. I'll count everything as loss compared to the honor of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God is building his home and in Christ you are invited to be part a special part of it. Leave behind everything else. As newborn babies desire the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Let God's Word change you. Let it kill your sin. Eradicate your desires and mature you into a priest by embracing suffering. Content knowing that you are part of something that will endure far longer than that great pyramid. For a little while, yes, you will be shamed in this world. But it's in God's house that you will enjoy honor forever. Let's pray. God, we are exhausted in this world. We're tired. We feel shame. Oftentimes, shame for what we have done to deserve it. Or maybe we feel shame because of what someone else's sin did to us. How do we endure? God, reveal to us more and more that You are holy. You are sovereign. You are working all things together. And those who laugh at us, those who scorn us, those who beat and mock us, 
They are simply our own tools for making us love Jesus even more. Hold that honor before our eyes continually. And may it continue to devote our hearts more and more to proclaiming Your excellencies in this fallen world. Redeem us and use us to redeem others in Christ. Amen.